Good evening. Good to see you guys here again at Cafe Genesis. We're continuing in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. In review, I, I want to again remind ourselves that as we are reading this, the entire thing is the Gospel. The Gospel is not just what takes place at the cross and the resurrection. The Gospel is the whole story of Messiah, who he was the promise of Messiah to the nation of Israel, the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We talked about that through the genealogy. It's also important to understand that, you know, the four books that we have at the beginning, they are the gospel. They're not different gospels. Yes, they're different books, but they are all the same gospel. And so each one is a count of this message, this story. And last week we looked at the temptation of Christ and saw how important that was for the identification with us, that he indeed was man, that Jesus did not operate as the Son of God when Satan tempted him and said, since you're the Son of God, command this stones to be made into bread. And he said, no, man does not live by bread alone, and he is acting as our brother, and that is how he's able to redeem us. And so now we're going to continue and look at his ministry as it actually begins, as he begins preaching, and we're going to start at verse 12. It says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee to the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so... Jesus begins, and we know more about what took place with John the Baptist in, in Luke's gospel. We don't get into detail of it here. But what we do have here is, is Matthew is pointing us in a direction. There's a trajectory here. You know, you ever see some of those things, or maybe you play those games. Do you remember that old game, Cannons, that used like the first Mac game where you shoot this cannon and it goes and it tries to blow up the other cannon, or maybe it's arrows. There's some simple games where you just try and set the trajectory. You know, if I set it at so many 30 degrees and I put 80%, you know, force, it'll blow up or kill the other guy. Anyone tracking with me? No? Okay. Anyway, we can see where Matthew is headed. We saw it from chapter 1, and it continues throughout. I mean, what we're trying to see here is who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. And that's why, again, he, he recites and talks about the prophecy of Isaiah. From the very beginning, in Genesis 12, when God called Abraham, the purpose of God calling Abraham was so that he would understand who he was, Yahweh. 
He was the creator God, and he was going to use this man, Abraham, to raise a nation through which all the nations would be blessed. And so it was through Abraham that the nation of Israel came. The nation of Israel was supposed to be an example to the world of who God was that they might know the truth. That was the beginning. That was the foundation. And what was that for? That was for all of us to know. And Matthew's intent here from chapter 1 when he talks about the genealogy of Christ, in that genealogy, genealogy, I almost swallowed that word there, in the genealogy, he mentions four women, and none of them are from the lineage of the Jewish people. They're Gentiles, and they have some scandalous backgrounds as well. And from that point all the way to chapter 8 where he ends the, the great commission that we know to go and preach this good news, make disciples of all nations. From the very beginning chapter to the end of this chapter, the trajectory, trajectory of Matthew is pointing to God taking this good news to the world. That's where he's going. This is the intent. This is the path he's leading. And, and so when he starts talking about these things, uh, about Isaiah and talking about this prophecy that was fulfilled, it's not a coincidence that this prophecy, verse 15 says, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. We know that from Judges chapter 1, this became a city that was given over to the Gentiles, that they did not kick them out, they occupied there, and it continued on through the day that Matthew is writing this. And Isaiah is talking about he is going to show up in the midst of these people and he's going to be a light to them. He is going to be this example. And you see, the problem was the Jewish people had this exclusive idea that God was their God alone and the Gentiles, they weren't fit to be anything but fuel for the fires of hell. They didn't know who God was. They were depraved in their ways and their diet and everything about them. They didn't have a chance. We were the chosen people. And you see, all along, God was trying to include the world, but it seems like man has a habit of excluding. And it's not only the nation of Israel. It happens in the church today. Oh, no, we, we can't accept them. They're, you know, they can't come and be a part of our time of worship. Why not? Well, you know, that person is, is living in sin or they're involved with drugs or, you know, they're of a different faith. They're Muslim. They're this. And so we start, you know, if you want to come and be a part of us, you have to join our group first. And that was never how it was meant to be. That God was always reaching out, trying to reveal who he was to those people who were on the outside. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. I want you guys to, to mark this down if you can in your Bible. It's one of my favorite passages. I refer to it often because I, I think it, again, it gives just the heart of God in such a, a clear manner. 1 Kings chapter 8. Starting at verse 41. Solomon is dedicating the temple of God. As he is 
establish this temple. Remember, David could not build the temple. Solomon, his son, built it. A place where the ark was to be, a place where worship was to be, a place that represented the presence of God to the people. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41, Solomon writes, he says, as for the foreigner, who would be the foreigner? That would be the Gentile, the outsider, those who weren't a part of the club, who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name. For they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Listen to this. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know, may know that this house I have built bears your name. And so Solomon in dedicating the temple says when that foreigner, that person who is outside of the people of Israel comes and he prays towards this temple, when they recognize that this was built in your name, whatever they ask, answer them so that they can know you. Have you ever prayed, God, answer that person's prayer just so that they could know you? Or does your mind like mine so many times? Well, it really depends on what the prayer is. You know, I want to know what the prayer is. So I'm not going to say God answered their prayer because what if their prayer isn't according to the will of God? You know, we get so nitpicky on all these things. The whole idea is God reveal yourself to them so that they might know. I've shared this story before and I love to share it because it's about my brother and it's fun to talk about him because uh, he's not here to defend himself. But... <laughs> Before he came to faith, he was involved with uh, drugs and, and the not. I, I can't pit him alone. I, I was involved with that too. But I came to faith first. And so then he was still out there doing his own thing. And he had had $100 that he'd gotten from somewhere for work or whatever. And he was going to go and buy some drugs with the money. And it was a $100 bill and he couldn't find it. And he had a one-room place. I mean, it was tiny. It was like a bedroom and there was a bathroom, not really even a kitchen. It was just a tiny place. And he had tore that place up and down because this was quite a while ago. I mean, this is some 30 years ago. $100 was worth $100 back then. And he looked everywhere and my mom and I had been sharing with him over and over again, really just pounding him, because uh, that's all we knew how to do back then. And, and so he was praying, and he just finally stopped. He says, okay, I'm going to pray. God, if you're real, show me where that $100 is. And he opened his eyes, and there on the table was a $100 bill that he had scoured and had not found it. And that left an impression in his mind. It was like, oh, my gosh, you're real. And it provoked him. He still went out and bought the drugs, but it left an impression in his mind that stuck with him long after that God showed up, heard his prayer, and answered him because he was trying to reveal himself to him. And he did. And he came to faith, and he knows the Lord and is walking with the Lord to this day. And so we see that the intent of Jesus 
is just like it says there, so that those living in the land of shadow of shadow of death, that a light has been dawned, that we would be able to see the truth of the Messiah. And this is the trajectory that Matthew is writing and exposing who Jesus is, what the gospel is, and what it is all about. He goes on in verse 17, and he says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent! for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now this language is one of breaking news. This is one of exclamation. This is something that's important. It's not like this is everyday common stuff. It's something that's supposed to grab our attention. You ever get a, a voicemail? You know, someone leaves a message for you. Hey man, it's me. Uh, give me a call when you get a chance. And it depends what you're doing. It's like, yeah, maybe later. You know, right now I'm watching TV or whatever it is. You know, you, I'm busy. Can't handle it right now. I just, I'll wait till later on. Or else maybe it's even bad news. You know, your boss calls or someone in your family. Hey, you know, where were you? You were supposed to be at the family reunion. Uh, why didn't you show up? And it's like, yeah, I'm not going to answer that one. You know, you just kind of hang up or, you know. Whatever it is, you know, the boss calls, hey, dude, you know, I need you to do this. Probably doesn't say dude, but, you know, whatever it is, it's just kind of giving you some news, pressing, and you're not real anxious to call back. But have you ever gotten a, a voicemail and it's like, man, call me. I got the greatest thing to share with you. You won't believe it. Oh, call, call me. Call me. Okay, call me. And they hang up. It's like, ah. What is it? You know, you're excited. Oh, I want to call. Well, this is breaking news. Jesus begins to talk and he begins to preach. And he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, the idea of the kingdom of heaven, we want to talk about this because this is going to be something that takes place throughout Matthew's gospel. It, it, we hear that term, kingdom of heaven, some 31 times. We hear kingdom of God some four times. Some people distinguish or try and distinguish between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. I believe they're interchangeable. The people who distinguish it seem to use it for their end times uh, perspective and theory. And all of their theories have been wrong so far, so I, I don't give a whole lot of credence to that. And, and so we see the idea of this kingdom of heaven is drawing near. And I want to look at four aspects of what the kingdom of heaven is. The first one is, it's the fullness of when God will reign. It's when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's when his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, it's a hope that we look forward to but isn't yet. It is a time that is coming when everything will be made right. And we're looking for that. We are longing for that. We are hoping towards that. It is our destiny. It is what we are longing for. It was what we are positioned towards. Hope for the future while we're living in this mess and this brokenness. We have a hope that carries us because you don't hope for what you have. It's for something yet to come. And so the first idea is that this hope is something that is in the future. And some of us are so unaware of this kingdom, this idea of God is going to change everything and establish his kingdom. 
and, and we don't think about it. It's not something that occupies our mind, usually because we're so consumed with our own life. We're doing our own thing. And maybe it's the relationships that we're involved in and we're, we're so focused on that, you know, I've got to see him or I see her, or, you know, I hope we're going to get married or whatever this might be or it might be your involvement with your children. Oh, I hope they graduate from school. I hope they, you know, graduate or stay in school, whatever it might be and their age might be, you know, or, or it might be concerning your, your job. And I hope I get that promotion and I, I want to get into this level or, or I want my business to succeed. And, and we get so focused on our world that the idea of this kingdom coming isn't great news to us because we've got our own plans, our own agendas. And it's going to come and then it'll be like, oh, I've got to stop now. Jesus is here, you know. Okay, yeah, now he's going to have his way, so everything's going to go to that. And he's going to kind of come in and, and ruin all our plans. I mean, we don't say it like that. We wouldn't. But the idea is that we don't think of our lives fitting into the kingdom that he's establishing. We kind of have our own life and then think, oh, God's going to establish his own ways later on. And sometimes we also can see people that have this end times kind of spectacular mentality. Everything is about the end times. And so we, we make bad movies. You know, we, we have these videos because we're all going to be left somewhere, you know. And now it's all about the sensationalism. Who is the, the Antichrist? And what is, you know, the mark of the beast? And, and all our focus goes towards those things. And we're not, again, looking at what really is the kingdom to come. It's no longer about Jesus reigning in righteousness. It's about all these spectacular things. And we'll have conferences about it. And, you know, if you want to get a lot of people into, you know, your community, we'll have an end times kind of thing, especially if a war is going to break down or there's some kind of turmoil. You can always use that to try and bump up, you know, the excitement. But that's not what this is really about. It's about the hope of Christ reigning. And so that is one of the aspects of what it is to have the kingdom of heaven and understanding what it is. The second thing is the kingdom of heaven comes through proclaiming the good news. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is putting words, putting words together that paint the picture of what God has done and is doing and is going to do. It's putting together this message, this gospel. It is proclaiming this kingdom. And so it is something we are hoping for, but it also is something that shows up while we are speaking, while we are sharing, while we are talking about these things. We are going to see over and over again how Jesus preached, how he proclaimed and said, the kingdom of heaven is like... The kingdom of heaven is in your midst. One place he says the kingdom of heaven is within you. And so this idea of the kingdom of heaven is something that is taking place that he is making known through his words. And so the kingdom of heaven is something that we proclaim. It is something we talk about. It is something that we acknowledge who God is, what he is doing, and our role in this work. The third thing I want to look at well, first, let me talk about just proclaiming. Why it's important for us to 
preach, proclaim. We don't use that word preach much, but the idea of share our faith. You know, just because someone has done a poor job of preaching the gospel doesn't absolve us from the responsibility to do it. And some people, you look at them and you think, man, that's just awful. The things that they say, maybe they're at a corner with a bullhorn shouting at people, telling them they're all going to hell. That doesn't absolve you from the responsibility of sharing your faith. And it's funny because even people, I've even talked to people who said, well, someone did that and I came to faith. And it's like, okay, I surrender. I don't, I don't know. God works in mysterious ways. But we are responsible to share our faith. We are to participate by making known, known this royal announcement. That's what evangelism is. It's presenting the truth of who God is through Jesus and what he's doing. And that's how the kingdom of heaven is made known, through our voice, through our proclaiming. A third way is the kingdom shows up within our hearts. As I alluded to before in Luke 17, 21, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is within you. The kingdom of heaven is established in those who allow the king to sit and reign in their lives. He becomes a part of their life. He becomes the focus, the center of our lives from which everything comes out. And so the kingdom of heaven is now a part of us. His desires are to be our desires. His ways are to be our ways. The things that he desires to see take place, we desire to take place. Why? Because he is in our heart. And so the kingdom of heaven shows up in us. It's through the people of God that the kingdom of God is unopposed and takes place. Nowhere else in this world is the kingdom of heaven unopposed except in the heart of those people who have put him in charge. Those who said, you reign in my life, you are my king, have your way. The kingdom of heaven shows up within our hearts and it's unopposed, it's unfiltered, and it's through us that we're able to proclaim these things because he is reigning within us. And the fourth way is in the world. And what I mean by this is wherever there is justice, wherever it's imposed, and we see a demonstration or a glimpse of the kingdom through those things that are good. And, and this takes place in different areas. You know, there are times where Paul writes, if those who did not know the law obeyed the law, they showed that there was a law at work within them in Romans chapter 2. And so we see glimpses of the kingdom of heaven taking place whenever we see good things happening to people. We see justice taking place. It, it is a sign that the kingdom of heaven is at work transforming the world that we live in and is showing up in the midst of things that maybe in one time were dark or just cloudy and unable to see. We tend to focus on, on just one of these areas. You know, we, we tend to focus on something that Maybe we like, like justice. The kingdom of heaven is all about justice for us. And so whenever there's something that's just or whenever there's uh, humanitarian work, we, we are all in. We're doing something in Mexico, something in Haiti. Yeah, the kingdom of heaven is at work. We're going to let Christ know through these things that we're doing. And then we tend to shun the other things, the end times people. Boo, you know, don't like them. We're the justice people. And then vice versa, you know, the justice people are, you know, are booed by the end times people. Oh, you guys are all about, you know, justice, the social gospel. But we're about, you know, this 
you know, end time and anyway. The whole point is sometimes we can focus on one or the other, but really the kingdom of heaven is about all of them. It's about all these things taking place. It's about the awareness of the kingdom that is going to reign here on earth. It is understanding that our voice is a part of that kingdom, that he reigns in our hearts, and that he is at work in the lives of those around us. Those are all how the kingdom of heaven shows up. And we're going to see that through the person of Jesus. Because when he says the kingdom of heaven, it's not always this future thing. As he talks about the parables, we're going to see it's something that we experience here now. <coughs> Even though it is a hope yet to come. And so I just wanted to, to kind of talk about the kingdom of heaven a little bit as we start this because we're going to cover it a lot. We're going to hear it over and over again. And, and what does Jesus mean? Well, he means all of these things. And context will give us a clarity of maybe about which one he's speaking about, but he is talking about this all-encompassing, the kingdom of heaven. And so don't get locked in on just one. Don't just focus on it's all about the preaching. It's all about the justice. It's all about the end times. It's about all of them. It's really all about Jesus. He is the kingdom of heaven established, and he is going to be the fulfillment. He is the author, the perfecter of our faith. This is all about him. And so we are to live in this hope that begins now within our hearts. It shows up in our lives until he establishes it completely. The kingdom of heaven is now near. Now, that's why this is exciting. Okay, that's why this is good news. Before we just go on and say, okay, yeah, this is the kingdom of heaven. Ta-da! Okay, th this is overwhelming what Jesus is saying here repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near it should warm your heart and the idea of repentance repentance means to change your direction it has the idea of not just changing your mind, but changing everything. And, and so let's continue reading as he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, because we're going to talk about three things that Jesus calls us to. Starting in verse 18, we continue and it says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the, their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various disease, those suffering severe pain and demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan 
followed him. Now, we see Jesus calls four brothers from verses 18 to 22. And it's in this four that he calls, three of them are prominent throughout the Gospels, Peter, James, and John. Poor Andrew. Okay. Andrew is actually the one we know from John's Gospel in chapter 1 that brought Peter to Jesus. And so he had a big role in this whole thing, you know, and he does actually a lot of things throughout the gospel. But the three prominent ones are here in these first four that are there. And, and there are three calls that Jesus presents here. He presents the first one to repent, the second one to follow, and the third one is to be healed. Repentance, again, is not changing your mind. It's changing your direction. It's turning around. It's recognizing that you can't fix things, but you know they need to be fixed. It's recognizing that God has to do something to make things right. That's the idea of changing. It's changing not, well, I just need to do something different. No, you need to let God do something that you can't do. That's what is meant here by the idea of turning your life, changing your direction. And you see, we need to recognize this because the kingdom of heaven is coming full speed ahead. It's like a freight train. And if you don't get out of the way, you're going to get run over. It's going to take you out. Or you can repent and say, God, I need to get on that train. I can't do it. Can you get me on? And then he is able to do what, again, we are not able to do. And unless we identify where we are and acknowledge that God needs to get us where we need to be, we'll never get there. And so repentance is saying, I am here, I need to be here, but I can't get there without your help. Help me. That's repenting. That's turning around, turning to God to get to where we need to be. And so repentance isn't just a change of attitude, a change of behavior. It's a change of life. It's a life that was once being controlled by me, being governed by me, to now a life that is being controlled and governed by God. It's handing over the keys and saying, you drive. I can't. You're my designated driver for life. I just don't trust myself. Nope, you need to do this. And so we see that there is this call at the very beginning to repent. And we're repenting again because the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's near. And if we want to be a part of it, we have to make this change. We have to see and acknowledge these things. You see, repentance has feet to it. It has action. It, it's not just ethereal. Even the word ethereal seems ethereal. You know, the idea of repentance is substance. It's, it, it's an action that has to take place. I, I think of Zacchaeus when Jesus saw him in the tree. Remember that song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Those of you in Sunday school, smile and acknowledge that you did hear that song. But what happened when Jesus went into the home of Zacchaeus and he had dinner with him? Zacchaeus then said, all the money I've stolen from all these people, I'm giving it back to them. And Jesus said, salvation has entered this house. Why? Because he has put action to what has taken place in his heart. And so there is this acknowledgement that what 
what it was before has now turned direction and my life is living in another way. I, I think sometimes about the things that I used to do before I came to faith in Christ, the things I would give myself over to. And I, I've talked to other people and you start talking with them and they share, you know what? Before I was a follower of Christ, I remember, man, I used to take the bus and I used to walk for miles just to score some drugs. And I, it would be, you know, late at night, I would be tired, but man, to do this, I had to do all these things. And I, I put this effort into what I wanted. And now there comes this repentance, and we see that effort moving in a different direction. Where we see now people, you know, well, yeah, now I don't walk to get drugs. Now I walk to get to church. I remember a young kid in my high school group when I used to teach high school years ago. A Vietnamese kid. And he would come to the high school group all by himself. His parents didn't go to church. And I remember I asked him, he goes, no, my parents, they don't even speak English. I just want to come and learn about Jesus. And so he would walk him, rain or shine, he would walk to church, to be a part of the class. And I forget, it wasn't like outrageous distance, but I mean, it would take him 20 minutes to walk to church. And so here I have this one kid who walks to get here because he wants to be here. And then I've got these other kids whose parents drive them here and they want to be anywhere but in my class. You guys know what I mean? And you've got this and you say, okay, repentance has feet. It has substance. It has action. It produces something like that. This, I'm not feeling it. No, know what I'm saying? There's no change here. There's no substance. There's no moving towards. This, this young kid is walking to hear about Christ. This person would like to walk away. Where is repentance? Well, this one might have prayed a prayer, has gone to church, answered an altar call, went down on a field, but now he just doesn't want to be here. And this one, maybe he didn't go through that altar call scenario, but he wants to be here. Which one is showing repentance? It's the one who's walking towards Christ and has made that, again, decision to follow after Christ. The second thing that Christ tells us to do, he tells them to follow him. These guys were fishermen. The fact that they are fishermen shows that they were not who was normally chosen to be a disciple. Usually a kid when he was young, starting all the way from 9 to 12 years of age, would start following, hanging out with the rabbis, trying to impress them, learning the Torah, trying to understand the fullness of the scriptures, memorizing them, and then reciting them to the rabbi so that the rabbi would pick them and say, you're my disciple. And if they didn't get picked, they went back to work with their parents, whatever it was. And we see that they were fishermen. And so they weren't picked. Maybe they didn't even apply. I don't know. But they weren't the cream of the crop. They, they, these guys were the B team. Okay? This was, you know, junior varsity. This wasn't your first team. This isn't the A team. They didn't make the grade, at least not the first cut. And so they're fulfilling their livelihood. They are now obligated. This is how you're going to make a living. You didn't have college 
where you can go and oh, I'm going to go and learn, you know, these things so I can. You just got into wherever your parents were. You found that trade and you became who they were. That's why Jesus was a carpenter for years. That was the trade of the family. And so these guys are working. They've got a livelihood. I say that because I think it's important for us to understand that these guys were established now. They're not just little kids who had a lot of options ahead of them. They are established. We know that Peter had a wife. Matthew, I think chapter 8, it talks about his wife. And so we see that they're maybe family men. They've got a trade. They're making a livelihood here. And it's in this position that Jesus calls them. So many times we think, well, Jesus is going to call the people who've got nothing but time on their hands. No, Jesus, you can't call me right now. I'm going to college. I've got my plan. Once I get my degree, then you can call me. Okay? No, Jesus, you can't call me right now because I'm in this, you know, internship. And as soon as I get done with this internship and get this position, then I'll have free time. Then you can call me. But in the middle of their occupation... Jesus calls them and he says, come and join me on a mission. You're fishing, you're going to start fishing for people. Join my mission. Join my work. Come and be a part of what I'm doing. And we see that it says, immediately they followed him. It actually says it twice. The first time, it doesn't use the word immediately. It says, it says come and follow me. It says, at once. In verse 20. And then later on in verse 22, it says immediately. It's actually the same word. I don't know why they didn't use the same word, but it's the same word. It's the idea, make the decision, make the choice, come now. Jesus later on would go and say, no man puts his hand to the plow and then looks back as fit for the kingdom of heaven. Once you follow me, follow me. And follow me when I call you. Don't wait for circumstances to change. Don't wait for things to happen. Follow me now. How do we respond? When Jesus calls us to something. When he asks us to step into something. Do we put it off? How many people maybe God is impressing them to, to follow him in some way? And I'm not saying it's to leave your, your job or quit school. I, I'm not saying that that's what it means to follow you, but maybe he's asking you, I want you to involve yourself with something. I remember two young men years ago came up to me. I I'd shared a study and I think it was in the Gospel of John or First John, I forget which one it was. And I had said some things about following Christ and going after him and they came up to me, this one, he says, you know what? I'm in school my parents want me to finish school, but I'm feeling like God wants me to go and be a part of this work in Mexico. But the work in Mexico would be like for a year. What should I do? And they asked me, you know, my parents don't want me to do it, but I feel like God's asking me to do it. What should I do? They're asking me, you know, okay, do your parents know me? Because <laughs> I'm going to tell you what I think you should do. I think if you feel God prompting you to go to Mexico, you need to go to Mexico. If that's how you feel prompted. What about school? What about my education? Isn't that important? Yeah, it's very important. 
But you need to say yes when Jesus says come. And if you think he's saying come follow me down to Mexico, then you need to leave school and go follow him. His parents were upset. But then later on, I don't know how many months later on, they really saw the effect that it was having in their son. And I actually met them later and they thanked me. So they were pleased that their kids were obedient to the voice of Christ. And when Christ calls us to follow, we need to respond. And we need to respond immediately. The response is about leaving something to follow something. When he says, follow me, he's telling you to not follow something else or not pursue something else. And so right now, I just challenge you, what is maybe Jesus telling you to do? How is he telling you to follow him? Because it varies. What does that mean? What does that look like? As he says follow, it means follow him instead of something else. From fishing for fish to fishing for men. Usually it is leaving some form of supposed security. I say supposed because there's nothing secure in this world. And again, it doesn't mean work. It doesn't mean your job. We see there are a lot of people in Scripture who had jobs. Jesus didn't come and say, you're, you're committed to poverty. That's the call of God on your life. There were people who were wealthy who contributed to the church who have for centuries. People who are impoverished don't want you to become impoverished and live with them. They want you to get them out of their impoverishment, at least most of the ones I know. It's not like, well, be here poor with me. There, we can both be poor. They'd rather you help them get out of that poverty. So it's not that Jesus is calling them to poverty. He is calling them to follow him, whatever that looks like. Some people are able to follow the Lord in their businesses, in their wealth. I know people who have used their jobs and their businesses to help employ people who have needed help throughout the years. That's happened with me uh, from a brother who actually gave me a job that I was able to work with for a period of time uh, that got me on my feet. I'm so thankful for that. And I'm thankful he's done that for, gosh, I don't know, dozens of people. And so following Christ for him means my business is now going to be used for the purposes of God. But a lot of times what it means is leaving this idea of security, some supposed security, for a life that is of faith. Faith is anything but secure. It is trusting for what we don't know. And God calls all of us to live lives of faith. And so we need to take that, follow after him, and do what they did. They followed immediately. If God prompts your heart, I want you to do something, you need to say yes. If God is prompting, how do I know it's God or not? You want me to answer that? I can't tell you how to answer that. That's something you have to answer. That's something you have to hear. My sheep hear my voice. There are times when I can tell you I knew God was calling me to do something and I didn't do it. I was scared. What about my family? What about this? What about that? And there are times when God said to do this and I did it. And I'm glad I did. It's faith. And so what we need to do is be so conditioned to hearing his voice, to leaning into the kingdom, understanding it, that when he speaks, we hear and we follow. We know it was him. 
The third thing he wants us to do, as they engaged in this life, they, they left their boat, and, you know, their life was never the same. Your life will never be the same if you say, yes, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. It'll never be the same. And again, this is glorious. This is incredible. It's wonderful. And the next thing he calls us to is healing. As we see from verse 23 on to the end of the chapter, 25, how these people were coming to him, they were being healed. This was one of the evidences that he was indeed the promised one of Israel, is that he was going to heal people. And so many times it says that, tell them, you know, the blind see, the lame walk, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Or it might say, and the poor um, are healed. And so in some places they're healed, in some places it says that they have salvation. Salvation and healing work interchangeably. The whole idea of healing is emotional, physical, and spiritual. It's not just about you repenting. It's not just about you doing something. It's about you becoming whole. You becoming who you are supposed to be. It is a healing that takes place in every aspect of your being. And so healing isn't just the body. Healing isn't just in the mind. Healing isn't just in the soul or spirit. Healing is something that takes place and encompasses all areas of our lives. And Jesus is desiring and calling us to healing. Now, we know through Scripture that we do not enjoy all the benefits of perfect health all the time. That there were many believers who were sick, who suffered different persecution, even Paul himself. Paul had to leave some, told Timothy, take some wine for your frequent stomach problems, have to leave Epaphroditus or Epaphras uh, sick because he was sick near to death, but God had mercy on him. This, we live in a fallen world. We are waiting with hope for the kingdom. Amen. Like, someday I will not have to have this pain. Someday, you know, we'll be able to enjoy all those things. And I know that that is something we still long for. But all along, what Christ is desiring to bring is wholeness. That's what salvation is. It's wholeness. It's being complete. And you will never be the man or woman you are supposed to be until Christ gets a hold of you and makes you whole. Brings healing to your life. That's what it's about. This is what he is about. And as he brings this position and he calls us to repent, he calls us to follow him, he calls us to be healed, he's now going to move on into this ministry and we're going to have some great, great conversations hearing what Jesus said through the parables, through his teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, the most powerful teaching I think there ever was and ever could be is next and so good, good, good stuff coming up, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for setting the stage and just a springboard to your kingdom and all that means. And, and as we move forward, we get to, to see you just express what the kingdom of heaven is all about. And God, it is so different than what we have supposed so many times. And, and Lord, we get to hear you speak to us to reveal the truth of not only the kingdom, but of you, the king. God, I pray that our hearts would be ignited as we read these things, that like when you spoke to 
the disciples and you called them and you said, follow me, you're, you're calling us, you're telling us to follow you. What does that mean? What is your voice leading us to? God, may we be people that repent, that follow, and enjoy the healing of your salvation. God, may we be people that are putting to action the things that we believe. May our faith produce a life that honors you. Again, thank you for this time, and I pray that you would speak to us through the things that we've read here tonight and even go on to read later on. Have your way with us, we pray. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.